Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today, we have Tyler Byers. Tyler is a two-time Paralympian. He is also a senior principal data scientist for ITRON. We're going to have to talk to him about what a senior principal data scientist does. He did his first wheelchair race at Bloomsday, which is a 20, which is 12K at age nine. But what's really remarkable is that Tyler took off time from 2009 until 2020 during COVID, got back into training, made the trials for, for, uh, for Tokyo. So really cool. Want to talk to him about how exactly you do that. Tyler, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate uh, you having me on. Can we start with Tokyo with how did that happen that you took off from 2009 until 2012 and 2020? So like, what, 11 years, 12 years? And yeah. got back into it and made, made the trials and were pretty darn close to making the team for Tokyo. Yeah, I was happy with uh, how the trials went. You know, you always want to make the team, but it, it gets harder and harder um, each each four years, it seems. So, yeah, I'd, I made the team in 2008 going to Beijing, and I competed in four different events over in Beijing and uh, got really close to a medal in the 4x400-meter relay, but uh, uh, I say the officials missed the, tag, the, the missed tag from one of the teams. But any, anyway, uh, in 2009... Um, I went overseas for work for a few years and spent a few years in Australia. And when I was down there, I, I crashed while training, hurt my wrist, needed uh, needed surgery and was out for a year. And then my wife and I, we started having some children. Um, so our first, first child, Truman, was born in uh, 2011. And then uh, we, we had uh, three more children over the next uh, seven years. And I, I wouldn't say I got out of racing. I was never really out. I never told the U.S. Paralympic Committee that um, I retired, but uh, I wasn't doing much racing. Uh, I was doing three or four a year. I continued to come home for Bloomsday every year, maybe did one marathon, usually Twin Cities Marathon, um, not super competitive, finishing in about two hours or so. Uh, and maybe one or two other races. So I, I wasn't completely out of the sport. Um, but I also wasn't, uh, I didn't have super healthy habits either. And I was, I was getting that dad bod. And every time I, my wife was pregnant with the, one of our kids, I, I gained another five pounds and, you know, and then it didn't come off. And right about Christmas, 2019, I, right after Christmas, New Year's, I got on the scale and it was the heaviest I'd ever been. Um, what is the heaviest you've ever been? I, I hit 140, Chris. Um, 140, so, okay. uh, which for me was big. When I went to Beijing in, um, in, in 2008, I was about 105, 110. Um, I, and I was still lifting weights. So I said, no, nah, I must be just getting stronger or something like that. You know, so the, you added really, a third uh, of your body weight. So that's <laughs> fairly significant. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. But yes, yes. Uh, uh, some of it was muscle weight, but most of it wasn't. Um, you know, that IPA a night a habit wasn't helping me. I heard you uh, had a habit too, didn't? Wasn't your uh, son? Yeah. yeah, you know, I, I like my dark chocolate as well. But uh, 
That's just yeah. for the heart, right? Right. Right. Exactly. It's it, it, it's it's heart healthy. A lot of a lot of good antioxidants there. Um, so early 2019, I decided, hey, uh, you know, things are getting a little bit easier with the kids. I, I just I, I, I want to start getting back in shape a little bit. And I started hitting the roller. And this was before COVID really hit. But then, of course, COVID hit in March and everybody's locked down and I'm no longer commuting to work. So I got an extra hour, hour and a half a day. Um, and I started to hit the roller hard and I got involved with uh, the Spokane Parasport that was doing uh, roller workouts. Uh, sorry, Parasport Spokane that was doing roller workouts via Zoom and and uh, training with some of those kids over over Zoom got me more motivated. And it was one of those kind of snowball things where I just started to see my weight drop. I started to see my times improved. Um, and then once we started to get back together as a team in uh, late summer 2020, uh, we had a little mock track meet at Parasport Spokane, and Teresa Skinner, who uh, executive director of that program and runs the track program, and they were timing me. She came up to me afterwards and said, "Are you sure you want to retire?" I was like, "Retire from what? Your times are pretty good. Here's the standards. You're you're getting pretty close." Really. Um, so that was in exciting. Which events? Did you come back in shorter events more quickly or longer events or what were you doing? I'd say the my closest ones at that time were the 400 and the 800. And I was still at that time a few seconds off from qualifying for even the uh, Paralympic trials. Um, but, you know, over the winter, trained, trained hard again with them on Zoom. There was another COVID wave. Everything shut, shut down again. And and did a lot of Zoom training, a lot of roller training, a lot of speed training, and more speed training than I had really ever done. And a um, couple track meets in early uh, 2021. Of course, the Paralympic trials were delayed one year. Uh, and so 2021, I hit some marks or close to marks at uh, some local track meets, and then went down to the Desert Challenge Games and, and finished it, getting all my marks to uh, qualify for the Paralympic trials. And that was that was really exciting for me to be able to come all the way back from, you know, somebody that was just kind of almost weekend warrior doing it, doing it for fun and, 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 and prove to myself that, Hey, I, I can still, you know, take care of myself, have better habits, better sleeping habits. Um, and, uh, you know, cut out my IPA night, uh, habit and, uh, you know, just a lot of things that led to being able to get back in shape and, and, and just the process of that, it's it's not so much the destination. I mean, the destination of getting to the Paralympic trials was exciting, but seeing how that helped me, how, how that helped, you know, my stress levels. Um, I had all sorts of aches and pains, you know, and I was nearing 40 at the time. I'm like, well, I just must be getting old, but uh, being in better shape and working out more, I have fewer pains now than I did when I was 33. You know, it's, and I'm concentrating better at work and I'm nicer to my kids and you know all these other effects that come with um focusing on that goal of getting 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 myself healthy again it's kind of an interesting little it's almost this sort of conundrum isn't it that like I mean really when you do spend the time to work out you mm -hmm. are more focused you yeah. are generally happier you sleep better you do like the system works better. Did you have any any models, any any people that you that you modeled yourself after 
as you were coming back or people that you look to for inspiration? I, I wouldn't say any one person or, or anything. I, I was looking at some of those um, athletes that were, um, you know, top of their game. And, you know, I, I'm not going to catch a Daniel or anything. I just don't have the, the, that, that sort of body size or talent. talent. But um, I will say, as I started to get faster with those, the Parasport Spokane kids, they, they were beaten beat my butt right at the beginning and and I'm losing the 16 and 18 year olds on the track and you know in many ways just chasing those kids around the track and trying to be young again um it, that that really helped motivate me on a day-to-day -day basis when I wasn't necessarily motivated or or didn't want to train and, and feel it and then uh, I will remember that one day when I beat one of the kids that uh, had been beating me all summer and I beat him into a into a headwind, he just started blustering. You, you, you and your old man muscles. <laughs> he just, uh, you know, he was the kind of kid that always had some uh, funny quote. But yeah, he was complaining about my old man muscles beating him into the wind, and he's like, "Okay, this is kind of fun again." You're like, "I, I could do that over and over again." Yeah, I'm yeah, you know, I, my kid, this is going to bring me back. Because I mean, I look at some of the wheelchair racers. Like, I mean, obviously, Jim Martinson was somebody who was formative in your mm -hmm. career who was who was a successful racer through mm -hmm. his 40s into his 50s really i mean just kept going and going creek shabor mm -hmm. was another one who's continued to be successful i saw that you did beat him at boulder though this year right. and then uh, and then heinz fry was another mm -hmm. one but what was different about those guys is that they never really took the time off right right they yeah. stayed I, I, and I'll admit when I was thinking that, hey, yeah, you know, I had my doubts. Can I do this again in my late 30s? And I'm thinking, well, those guys were doing it in their 50s. Um, if they can do it in their 50s, I can probably do this in my 30s. And I haven't had any significant injuries. So, um, yeah, thinking about Jim Martinson, definitely. Um, I had a lot of exposure and was his friend as I was growing up. And he helped me like he helped so many other people um when when i was a kid and helped help me get my first racing chair when i was nine years old um so i do follow him on strava and see that he's out there still riding the the hand cycle and thinking back to some of his uh results from bloomsday when he was 61 and still uh doing low 30s in that 12k race at age 61 i'm like yeah, you know if others have done this i think i can do it <laughs> what was the reaction from your kids when you told them your goal to to make the trials and i'd imagine was your goal to make the trials was your goal to make the games what were you stating as your goal and what do your kids think it's interesting because my, my my kids are still relatively young the oldest uh, just turned 11 a couple months ago um and so i didn't necessarily tell my kids any specific goal that i want to make this track meet um but after i did make the track me and told them about what it was all about. They certainly got really excited for me. Um, they would more just come out and see me on the garage in my roller and want to talk to me while I've got some music playing, maybe be a little bit annoyed like kids, kids are because they want to talk to me and I'm in the middle of a sprint and can't stop. So they got to wait. And then the 11 year olds pretending to push, you know, just <laughs> so he, he, he's making fun of me. But um, yeah. I think it became more real to them this year. We we traveled with them to a couple of races. So I did LA Marathon, and traveled with them, and they got to see me in that. And then they got to see me at the Boulder Boulder and um, 
really cool in the stadium of the Boulder Boiler, they got the big screen and they're actually following us uh, with cameras and they keep flipping back to Krieg and me pushing together for most of that race. And I think it really hit them at that time. Hey, what, this is really cool what dad's doing. This is really fun. And, and um, my, my son came back and he, he drew me a picture of uh, me racing with an American flag behind me. And now it's hanging up right, right in front of my roller. So um, pretty, pretty cool to see them. And, you know, I'm really hopeful that they're able to recognize that hard work that went into me training and, and what it applied for. And, you know, as they get older, they can take some of those lessons and apply to their work and, and what they're doing. The dad, right. These teachable moment things. You are your own teachable moment. I'm trying my man. <laughs> and Boulder, you were finishing in the football stadium where CU plays. So mm-hmm. it's a super cool race. But you're with Creek Shabor, who is who arguably is one of the greatest climbers, too. Mm-hmm. And coming in, how did that work out? Because I know that that race comes along, there's a long straightaway, and then you take the turn into the stadium, and it is a steep little hill. Yeah. Before you get into the stadium. What were you, what were you thinking? Man, it, it was tough. I, I, I thought uh, Krieg and I were going to be in a battle the whole way. So Krieg and I also pushed together in Boston Marathon. Um, I caught him about mile eight, and then uh, we, we pushed together, and I was pulling the flats, and he was, he was pulling on, on the downhills and, and some of the uphills. And then Heartbreak Hill, he absolutely crushed me and broke my heart. <laughs> and... And honestly, that's about the worst I've ever felt in a race. I've, I've been doing this 30 years, and that is about the worst I've ever felt. My body just, uh, I, I don't know, everything was on fire. So it was um, just physical. I mean, or, or was it was it the emotional part, too? No, it was absolutely physical. You know, okay. I was, I, it took me longer to recover from that race than any other one before. But he, he crushed me on that uphill. So we get together in Boston, I'm thinking, well, I got to try and get away from him before the last hill um or or we got to boulder and boulder we pushed together for about four miles and he was again pulling on the uphills and i got in front and pulled on some of the slight downhills and flats and then through the town there's a bunch of little turns you you come off this little hill at mile four and there's a bunch of little turns through the middle of boulder i managed to gap him a little bit on one of those corners and put the hammer down for a half mile. And Boulder is one of these weird things because it's an altitude. Everybody's body responds a little bit differently. And I think he just wasn't able to respond to that uh, surge for me. So I I, I did get about a quarter mile gap on him. So when I I hit that final hill, I I still had to hit it hard thinking he might catch me, but um, I had enough enough space there that uh, able to hold on that one time. But... um, you know, he, he came back uh, two months later and beat me in uh, the Boilermaker 15K in uh, Utica, New York. So, you know, I don't have his number by any means yet. <laughs> he exacted his revenge. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about that you got into this pre-COVID, started mm-hmm. racing with, the, with Paris Sports Spokane, which is an amazing program. I mean, they had yeah, so many athletes on the Paralympic team in mm-hmm. Tokyo. And so, I mean, so one, the excitement of being there has to be really great, but you did all of that and now you're continuing. So you're back into 
essentially kind of the racing lifestyle that you had, but you're a racing lifestyle with kids mm-hmm. with a very full-time job. Uh, How are you, what, what's your <laughs> mindset now? I mean, is it just that this is something that was missing in your life and, and now that it's back in your life, you don't want to let go of it? How does that work? You know, I, I asked myself that, you know, how long can I keep this up? But, uh, you know, it's, it's just a matter of finding the right priorities. Um, I, I mean, anybody coming up and talking to me about the latest pop culture thing or the latest TV show will get a pretty blank stare for me. I just don't have that, that sort of time. But uh, the racing and the output, it, it, it's great to put a race on your schedule because it gives you something to focus for. But that, that is not the destination for me. It's, it's better health, better fitness, uh, feeling better through uh, being able to do these things and, and, and still being able to you know, in, enjoy and use my body um, as, as best I can. Um, I'm more picky and more choosy about the races I'm doing. I, you know, I'm not traveling 15 times a year. I'm, you know, got to have that. You, you got to pick the ones that are most important to you. And some of that is you know, do a big race like Boston. Um, others are, Hey, let's do some smaller races where I develop relationships over time. Um, and really enjoy those organizers and want to continue to, um, support them. Um, but one thing after I came out of the Tokyo trials is that there still hadn't been very many road races. I mean, that there were a few track meets on, on, on the schedule that year, but road races really hadn't started back up until late 2021. And I wanted the opportunity to do a few marathons, especially that I haven't done before and, and see if I can you know, get myself back into that marathon shape. And I'd really love to be able to beat that uh, personal record I have still from 2008 in Beijing. Um, uh, hour 32 and change, um, you know, through the smoggy, smoggy air of Beijing. But uh, um, yeah, you know, who knows how long it'll keep you. You've definitely got a busy schedule, but uh, I have a super supportive wife that's uh, um, willing to let me get on a plane, you know, a half dozen times a year and, uh, uh, go away for a couple of days and, and then come back. She knows, she knows, you know, it really is my hobby and my passion what I've been doing for 30 years now. And so, you know, yeah, got to keep each other happy. And then I support her and some of her passions as well. So it's, it's just really a give and take, but it's, it's been a lot of fun to get back into it and see a lot of folks that, uh, I hadn't seen for a long time. The racing chair is a really interesting animal, isn't it? When you are when you are in shape and you're fit, it is so beautiful. Everything works. Mm-hmm. But you got into this, you got back into this when you were 35 pounds heavier. Right. I mean, probably on the verge of not fitting into your racing chair right. to be able to work out into your and how much of seeing that part of this is how badly it can go and then feeling so much better now and knowing that you have to keep going in order to maintain this set of fitness is that in your thinking because it can get hard to train every day to make time to train you know it absolutely can get hard um you know and again i never completely quit but uh there, there was, you know, there, 
I, I had settled into the point where, hey, uh, you know, I, I, I never actually needed a, a wider chair. All, all my extra weight went forward. Um, but I couldn't lean over all the way and you get to the bottom of the rings. Um, and so um, I'd be okay with getting on the roller and having an average speed of 12 or 13 miles an hour for a, a roller workout. Uh, you know, now it's 16-ish or more um, for a roller workout. So it was rather than thinking... I, I try not to think those negative thoughts about, uh, you know, don't want to get back to that point. I just, I think more about how good I feel comparatively now. And when I do struggle with some of that, it's, it's as I was getting better and faster again and thinking how much it, week by week, I noticed the chair felt better and I could breathe better and uh, my stomach didn't hurt and my neck didn't hurt. And, and um, just thinking about all those steps to get there, I, I, I try and keep that positive thing in mind. Um, I'll admit, though, that, you, you know, when you are tired and stressed from work, it's like, oh, man, do I have to keep doing this? But it's, you know, it don't necessarily have to get in the train, the, uh, the uh, racer every day, but I, I might jump in the hand cycle on the trainer on the, in, the, in the garage and just a little spinning. And that seems at least help clear my mind and you know it's it's about more than just the physical fitness so much of it is mental fitness and i know when i'm just like it, you know i gotta have those endorphins and go out and spin a little bit or push a little bit and you know how much better i feel afterwards so you know there's a point though where you're doing some of that base training and you know i can i can see who knows a year or two will be like okay i'm tired of all the speed training which is so necessary the, the hardest part about wheelchair racing and being competitive is you have to do so much interval training so much speed training and that really is mentally draining i can get out and spend long miles hour an hour and a half and be just fine but uh, when you're incorporating tempo intervals and sprint intervals um you know it, it just becomes a lot more physically and mentally exhausting so you know who knows who knows how long it'll last but i, I do want to continue to be in at least base level of fitness for physical and mental well-being the, those intervals are where you're short but where you know where you're sore but sometimes you get that payoff i saw one yeah. workout that you had and was this on your bike or was this in your racer it said it was in your racer it's like 35 miles on a on a on like a bike path it looked like and you're going you're going 15 plus miles an hour for 35 miles was that in your racer yeah that was in my racer um we could, about an hour away from my house over in uh, northern idaho there's a 72 mile long trail and it's just a beautiful rails to trails thing between these these big mountains and next to uh cordelaine lake cordelaine um and so there's there's this one section I did about a month ago that's flat as a pancake. I mean, the whole, total elevation gained over 35 miles was 50, 60 feet. I mean, really is just flat. Um, yeah, and I felt good that day. Went out and um, it just just looked at my average speed, and I think I was actually trying to keep about a 14-mile-an-hour average speed is what I finished after that, but uh, there was one point during that training run where I did stop, 
um, kind of adjust some things. And then the mosquitoes just started gnawing me alive because it's right next to a wetland. So, you know, I couldn't stop just, just, <laughs> or else I was going to get eaten alive. But um, yeah, I uh, did that one, did a, another 38 miler a week and a half ago on another part of that trail. And, and then I got another long one planned for this weekend. And and I'll start ramping down on the, some of the volume and focus more on intensity for uh, marathons coming up. What do you have for marathons coming up this fall? Because you said marathons, and most people do not talk about marathons for a season. I recognize that like last year was a totally different year, right? Coming off of, off of Tokyo, there were five, the five major marathons were in the fall to the right. point where it was a week in between and then Boston and Chicago were a day in <sighs> what are you looking at because you're you're more on the saner side of things right now not to I, put words in your mouth yeah I, I don't know how those guys do the back-to-back -back marathon you know, Chicago and Boston that's that's just incredible um I, I do a marathon now and I, I'm a wreck for a good several days now we can recover a lot faster than most runners uh, it, it's not quite the same sort of uh, body beating intensity as running a marathon, but it, it, it's still a lot. Um, but this fall, I'm, I'm doing the Twin Cities Marathon first weekend of October. Um, and that's one of those smaller races. I've developed a lot of great relationships. I just love going back when I can. So the last time I did that was 2019. Um, doing Chicago a week later. So that is going to be my short interval. Um, so uh, but a lot of people doing Chicago are going to be doing London the same weekend I'm doing, um, I'm, I'm doing Twin Cities. So I think a lot of people will be coming in that a little bit tired. Um, I haven't done Chicago since 2005. So looking forward to that. And then, uh, Oita Marathon in Oita, Japan toward the end of November. And first time I'm going to do Oita, that's been a bucket list thing for me. Um, Tell people what Oita is like, because, I mean, obviously you haven't been there yet but I think you know a little bit about it. So Oida has long been like the cream of uh, wheelchair marathons. They, you know, back in when they were getting really big crowds, they'd get crowds of 300 some wheelchair racers. Um, even now it's, it's, it's probably the biggest uh, wheelchair race in the world. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the numbers are now, but still relatively close to hundred. Um, it's also one of the fastest marathons in the world very flat course uh, chris i think they did change the course since you know in the last couple of years so it's more of a criterium type course with a couple laps but um yeah it, that is that is one where world records have been set a lot of people get their personal bests and um just looking forward to finally getting a chance to go over there um, yeah, last year marcel hoog went 117 there right to break the world record yeah i think that's right so um yeah just incredible uh so i, I i'm hoping for good weather they sometimes get rain over there in november but uh and for a good weather day uh get a good time and then uh december my wife and all uh, my wife and i'll skip over to honolulu for a couple of days and i'll work in a marathon over there while we're there she she complains because every time we travel it's for your racing but you know, sorry hon but uh yeah it's uh did my first Honolulu a year ago and I was like why did I wait so long which which is another one of those that you talk about it could rain it Oida 
in Honolulu, it doesn't have to rain and it feels like it's rain just because it's so humid there. Yeah, well, last year it was raining for a, they get the trade winds in. It was raining uh, like mile 13 to 16 and then you come back and do the same thing. So mile, whatever, 20 through 23 or something, it was raining in the same spot both ways. <laughs> and nowhere else on the course. Nowhere else, it was completely dry, but it that, that race is really, different than all the others because it's it's done in the dark you start at 4 30 in the morning and and uh the sun was rising in almost the exact minute that i finished so you you bring your lights and it's just completely different experience racing in the dark it makes you feel like you're going so much faster than you actually are because you can't see anything but um yeah and then great, great in, in honolulu as well it's it's rough it's really rough yeah and yeah sit by the pool you know i'm recovering gotta, gotta eat uh, what do you have for expectations you're doing four marathons what do you have for expectations do you, do you put expectations on are they places are they times are they wanting to go with the lead pack how does that work it, it's hard to set a time on something just because it's so affected by the weather but um at least for like twin cities there's a good group of folks coming from the university of arizona and i'd like to have a good competitive race with them but I don't want to burn out where I'm, I'm, I can't recover by Chicago. So I'd like to go in Chicago. And if we, uh, you know, if we have good weather there, I'd, I'd like to be able to, you know, get in the one thirties and um, see if I can be competitive with, you know, maybe not the top three or four guys, but a good group of elite guys. Um, it's so much more fun when you uh, get in a pack and race. So um that, that that's it's really kind of the limit of my expectations I, I know i'm not going to go out there and win the race but if i can go out there and you know have the best sort of performance that i can i, I think i'll be happy with that you talk about a pack and some people might not understand that in in wheelchair racing like cycling drafting is such a huge part of going fast you can save so much energy being behind someone else the race that you went the fastest in Beijing, was that the craziest pack that you've been in? Because that was almost dead flat and you had a huge pack of people. I almost feel like you were going really fast and not necessarily doing all that much work at times. Yeah, uh, especially the first few miles, it was just nuts. Uh, a lot of jockeying for position. Um, I think by mile three or four, I had settled into a more manageable pack, maybe five, six, seven guys. Um, and, and we dropped off folks, you know, throughout the race. So I ended up finishing in a pack of three, which, which, which wasn't too terribly crazy, but yeah, definitely the beginning of that race. Um, you know, you gotta be so careful. It's you want to attack and you want to go fast, but if you get behind the wrong person and aren't paying attention, they fall off from the pack and, you got a heck of a lot of work to do to try and catch up. So, um, so much racing it's strategic and knowing who you're with and, and that experience really comes into play. And the experience is knowing who you can trust to be behind and who you can't. Um, so, um, that that's maybe one of the hardest things about coming back into racing after being away for so long is, I don't know who a lot of these top racers are anymore. Can I trust them or, or, or can I not? Are they just, are they going out? And that, that happened to me a little bit in Boston is, uh, you know, are you getting behind the right person to get in the, in the pack? How much are you doing as far as, as far as data collection? I see that you have two watches on. 
how much of that is affecting, you know, especially as you get older, right? How your training's working, what your oxygenation's like, what your sleep's like, that kind of yeah. thing. Not changed since you started <laughs> racing. Did you go to that when you started getting back into shape or had you been doing this before? And does it affect I, the rest of your life? I was kind of an early adopter with, uh, with uh, data collection. I got a, my first polar in like 2003 or 2004. And that's when the chest straps were, you know, half inch thick and digging your ribs. And I dealt with it because I, you know, and, and, and I'll say, I, I even went back farther when I was a teenager and I can go into storage. Um, I've got, I've got, I, I, I printed out a weekly schedule and it wasn't a schedule of what I was going to do, but a, a log of what I did. And I started, I've been logging my workouts since I was 12 years old. Um, and I was taking those stats off the cat eye and I'd be writing that down and writing notes and, and uh, logging my weekly mileage. I remember in high school, one, one week when I did 116 miles in one week. And um, that, that was a pretty, pretty cool accomplishment to see that on the thing. But it, once the heart rate monitors uh, became more popular in about 2003, 2004, I got my first Polar. And it's been, it, it's been one of those training tools that's been instrumental to me. I mean, I'll almost quit a workout if my Polar isn't working right. Um, it's like no data, it's not, it's not worth it. But um, yeah, so now I record all my workouts on Strava and use that as a little bit of note taking. I just think it's a nice, uh, nice, uh, you know, aggregation platform. But as far as these watches, what I wear, I mean, I've got the Apple Watch. Um, it, great tool, doesn't necessarily work too well for wheelchair racing just because the optical heart rate monitor doesn't work great uh, during workout. Um, but I also got another band here, and this is the Whoop band. Um, I've been a Whoop member for two and a half years. And for those who don't aren't familiar with the loop, it, what it's a strain tracker and a sleep tracker basically, and it gives you when you wake up every morning, it'll tell you how much you slept and how much REM sleep you got and how much deep sleep you got, and the the key metric really is your heart rate variability, and heart rate variability works a little opposite to resting heart rate. Resting heart rate is you get fitter, it'll go down. Uh, heart rate variability you want that to go up and uh we won't get into the science of why that works right now but um, um it, it based on all these factors it gives you a recovery score every morning and i do use that as a good decision support tool um if i'm waking up and i thought i was going to have an easy workout day and then i'm seeing an 85 percent recovery i'm like damn it i guess i gotta go hard today um or if i wake up and it's it's 50, oh, maybe I should dial, dial back my intensity a little, a little workout. Um, and then just some of the data that I've gotten, like you know, the, the effect of a single drink of alcohol before bed and what that has on your recovery score and your, what it does to your sleep. It's just, it was eye-opening to me. Um, and, 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 and a few other things you might do during the day, you can track different behaviors. So yeah. You I, about dark chocolate. Does that have an effect or is it just the alcohol? Uh, just the alcohol. Dark chocolate is only good. Um, I should start tracking that, actually. It's not one of the default uh, 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 journal behaviors as far as I know. But, um, you know, as a data junkie, I've always been a data junkie, which is part of the reason why I'm a data scientist now. 
you know, I got to collect the data and I do use it to help make better decisions about how to train and, and, um, and, it, 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 and decisions I make during the life to day to try and make me healthier and sleep better and that kind of that stuff. When did you make that decision to go into data science? Was this something you knew you'd do in high school or is it just sort of like a hobby that became your profession in some ways? So when I was in high school, data science wasn't a thing. Um, so no, I, I, didn't, I didn't make that conscious decision, but yeah, I've always been into stats and data. Um, like uh, growing up, I was my brother's team's baseball team scorekeeper and at the end of every year i'd compile all their stats and give them little baseball cards with their stats and then i talked about the, the keeping training logs and I, I did other data things too when i was a kid so i i went in and got my uh degree in engineering mathematics um which has, has served me well I, I was really interested in engineering but the most fun classes i had were a couple the most fun class i had was actually computational fluid dynamics um so uh, tracking little data and, and and then some other numerical analysis of all things my first job out of college was uh working for the federal government doing data analysis um so it was it was a clearance job and working over in washington dc and that that was that was pretty cool and uh followed that uh, did federal government work for about 10 years. They had a lot of data that, the, and, and there are just so many different things, you know, I was working within the weapons analysis. So, you know, there was a lot of data there, but there are so many different subjects you could, um, work on there. And, and I barely scratched the surface. Um, but, uh, you know, we eventually found our, our way to Denver and I realized, you know, I like the federal government a lot, but I wanted to be more in control over where I lived. And with the government, you can't uh, be as good at control where you live. You know, they're going to move you where they need you. Um, and so data science became a thing, you know, became more popular and known in 2012, 2013. And so I just started reskilling myself, taking some online classes and, um, uh, took a lot of work and a lot of that was time taken away from training because I was up late studying and doing various exercises and stuff but uh, paid off because I was able to pivot over to industry and, and do some data science and you know I, now I've been doing it in industry for the last seven seven years and found myself living where I want to live uh, with a schedule that works well for me and my family and and racing and um, so it's it, it's been a good move. What does your typical day look like? So in my title right now is senior principal data scientist, and I work for a company called iTron Inc. Um, and iTron, a lot of people know iTron because of, they're in the utilities industry. And you might go out to the side of your house and see a meter on the side of your house that says iTron on it. Not everybody, but they're the, the biggest meter, man, meter manufacturer in the world. Um, over the last several years, iTron has... Uh, become more of a software and outcomes developer for utilities. Um, and the product that I'm working on, we are developing a product to help utilities manage electric vehicle charging on their grid from a residential perspective. Um, electric vehicles are great. Uh, they, 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 you know, they're a lot more efficient, a uh, lot, of, lot of benefits to them. But one of the drawbacks is if you 
charging at home and three of your neighbors are also charging their Tesla at home, you might blow up the transformer uh, in your neighborhood and have a big transformer fire and then everybody's um, power goes out. Um, so utilities have come to recognize this as electric vehicles get more um, widespread on the grid that we have to manage this charging a little bit better. And there's a lot of <clears throat> data science involved with that. Um, so I work closely with a software engineering team that is developing an application. And I manage two other data scientists and our little data science team is uh, developing the analytics. Uh, and we're developing the AI in many ways to be able to run in this application to go out and identify where the trouble spots are, um, identify who's charging and, and, and when, and, and help the utilities be able to manage um, their electric vehicle load a little bit better. So as a manager, I'm, I'm involved in a fair amount of meetings, you know, then Zoom or Teams, uh, Teams chat, um, you know, two to four hours a day. Um, I'm helping my teammates and they might be having some problems setting up infrastructure we need or getting writing some code. Um, I did have a wonderful two weeks where my meeting load was uh, low for a couple of weeks. So I got, <clears throat> I, I got to uh, code in Python for five or six hours a day. And I say that's wonderful, but uh, a lot of people are like, eh, but you know, that, that, that was great because I just got to kind of put on my headphones and, and, and pump some music and, and really get in the zone. Um, being doing data science or doing uh, software engineering, it, it in many ways it's it's similar to doing sports. Um, if you can really get into it and get into a flow, you get into a flow state, and you'll get a couple hours that just pass by really quickly. And you might finish you're completely wiped and exhausted, but uh, you feel like you really accomplished something afterwards. Um, so that's a little bit what I do. I just you know stare at numbers and Python code and 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 meetings, chats all day, and working with product managers to try and make sure we're developing the right product for our customers. And you know it's it's a it's a nice job because it's not the same thing every day. I really do get a, a variety of different things to work on, um, but it is a fair amount as a manager. It's a fair amount of context switching too, which um, fortunately being a being a parent, I've got plenty of experience context switching now. So, what's the? You say you've been a data guy your whole life. The interpretation, you know, I mean, that's like it's because because we've gone from data to like big data. How much does that change in your ability to interpret what the data means? Does it keep getting better? as it would sound like? You know, there is definitely an upper limit. Um, <clears throat> the larger the data gets, the harder it is to analyze it, but uh, tools are catching up. Um, but uh, I'd say really the difference is when you're looking at smaller pieces of data, you know, like a, a journal entry or whatever, you're, you're doing it, you're, you're picking out interesting things and telling stories. And it's a lot harder to do statistical analysis but when you got almost big data, anecdotal versus yeah, statistical in some ways yes exactly that's what i was looking for anecdotal but uh when you got big data you're, you're you have to make generalizations about a, a population and you're you're doing a lot more statistical analyses and it takes it in many ways a different sort of skill um it, you know it's a skill that i've learned to develop over time but it it, it is definitely harder 
Um, but you still have to be that storyteller. And when you're talking to um, executives, they're, they're, executives still go by gut feeling, but how can you find an interesting story in the data to tell them the story you want? Um, now, one thing I really like about being a data guy is so many, often you're the first person to know the truth about something. You, 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 you're in discovery mode and there've been times in my career where I'm like, I'm probably the only person in the world that knows this fact right now. Let's tell everybody I know. And, and that's, that's really exciting. And it's something that you get through digging and, and, and finding that story and, and um, you know, just checking your sources and, and much like what a journalist or something like, like that might do. How convinced are you that you know something when you know something? You said you might be the only one who knows it. When you look at that and look at the data, you know, is, is there the part of you that goes, this is 100% correct? Or is there a part of you that's like, okay, is this exactly what I think it is? It depends on the veracity of your data and how much you trust your data. Um, so much of it, you have to know how the data was sourced, um, what systems developed it. Was it a human that collected it? Was it a machine that collected it? Um, and do you have multiple ways of looking at the same thing? So it's like multiple camera angles. I've looked at it from a short screen, but do I have a wide view that corroborates the story that I'm, I'm trying to, um, trying to tell? So there, there are definitely times when I think I've found something and then I'll tell my colleague and they're like, oh, did you think of this or that? I'm like, oh, dang, dang, no, but there are, there are other times when like, I know I'm correct on this and it, it can be really exciting. You just can't wait to tell it, it, everybody. And then people are like, oh, that's nice. But <laughs> no, sometimes, sometimes I, I've had some experiences once where, um, you know, you did find something out that maybe an expert had been looking for for a long time and I found it out. And he's um, like, oh, I've been looking for that for so long. Way to go. And it, it's, it's just having that beginner's mindset sometime and um, maybe being able to find something somebody else wasn't, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just fun experience. It's, it's not for everybody, but, uh, for how my brain works, it, uh, it's fun for me. What's the aesthetic of your journey of like, cause I'm assuming in the beginning, you have to make some assumptions about the data and, and, and the processing of the data and then the interpretation, right? What's, is there an aesthetic with this? Is there inherent beauty? It is a lot of people don't like the term data science, but I think it still works because a lot of times you start out with the hypothesis of what you think you're going to find. And, and so they, they, in many ways, it does follow the scientific processes. You, you have a hypothesis and then you get the data in and you try and support or you validate or refute that claim. And the real aesthetic, I'd say, is that you have to have a curious mind, but you also can't be egotistical about what your hypotheses are. You got to be willing to, you know, kill your darlings and and be able be willing to disprove. So it's it, it works well for a person who doesn't mind being wrong, but a, an, a innately curious person that uh, does want to dig and, and find the truth. Your position in a lot of ways is that between between the team and then the company, right? So. So we're talking about the data on one side, but then you said you do have to be able to tell that story to, to, to the people who don't necessarily process the data, but 
are using your information to make decisions. Do you enjoy that position, being able to do both things? I do. I like, like, like I said, I, I, one of the things I like about data science is that uh, there's a variety of things. It's not just coding in the trenches all the time. Um, you do come up for air. And, and what's nice about telling other people, I'll call them lay people, but people that might not be an expert in the same area as me, is they might be a super smart person in terms of um, substantive expertise, knowing the subject in and out, or I get so deep down in the weeds uh, that I forget to see the forest for the trees. And, and you tell it to somebody who's not familiar with the weeds, they know the forest. So they might be able to give you some more context for how it fits in with greater organization or greater goals. And, and just that corroboration of working together with other really smart people that uh, have different expertise levels is, is, is really fun and can be kind of magical sometimes. What do you tell your kids that you do? All the kids, oldest kids now, uh, you know, they'll tell their friends, my dad's a data scientist. Oh, what does he do? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, no, the, you know, they're not going to be impressed by Python code or, or, or the emails I write or the stuff like that. But if I've made a particularly cool graph or something, a visualization, I might show them that visualization. So, you know, my oldest son has long said, well, my dad makes graphs for work and uh, they think that's cool. But now he's getting a little older. Um, he understands that uh, there's some artificial intelligence applications. And so he's, He's, he started saying, hey, dad, I want to go into AI like you, but I want to build robots with it. You know, he doesn't want to do the kind that I do, but he wants to do, you know, kind of an adjacent field. So he's kind of like the executives in some ways that you're working with, right? You're <laughs> interpreting the data and giving him a nice graph. And he's like, oh, okay, now I understand what's going on. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, at 11, he's got a little less of an executive function than they do, but uh, he's getting there. What are you going to do in the future? I mean, this is kind of interesting talking about the data because as a racer gets older, you generally get slower. But as you get older, you get more and more data about yourself. So theoretically, you know yourself as an athlete far better at 40 than you did at 18. Yeah. What does that mean for you potentially for the next couple of years? What might we see you in Paris? Can you juggle all this? It sounds like you're getting to a point where edu where, where uh, vocationally you can manage your workload a little mm -hmm. bit better. It's really nice, especially with the advent of, you know, and my company's really accepting that work from home. Um, you know, I only live 10 to 15 minutes from the office, but, you know, if I can work from home three to four days a week, that makes jumping on the roller at lunchtime a lot easier. Um, as you were talking, one, one thing I thought about in terms of data collection and getting older, you know, one thing I've noticed is I've been tracking in the last two years. It, it's really true. Your maximum heart rate drops by one beat a year and I can't hit the heart rate now that I could two years ago. I'm like, it's, it was only two years ago, right? Um, so that's a bit of an eye-opener. I don't ever remember seeing that effect in my 20s. Maybe it's just picked up more or it's more noticeable. It's more deer probably as well. It's 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 probably more deer, you know, when you're dropping from 197 to 196, it's not, not so much, but now in the 180s, it's, it's like, oh boy, uh, you know, that's excess capacity I'm losing uh, each year. 
Um, but yeah, no, you say knowing yourself. Uh, it, it's really true. You know, one thing that really dogs me when I was going to the Paralympics in 2008 is that I was hurt a lot. Um, I, I got all sorts of little back injuries or infections or, you know, I was always tired and, and I felt like I was only 26. Why am I getting hurt so much? Um, and in many ways, that's kind of what I step, why I step back. Uh, it's like, oh, I'm always getting hurt. This is really frustrating. Um, but, uh, you know, knock on wood, I, I'm, I'm going to say this, but I, I've, I've enjoyed really good health over the last two years. And even some of my nagging injuries that have been going be, because I'm being smarter about lifting um, or stretching or having better nighttime habits. So I get better sleep and better recovery. You know, all those little things knowing my body and myself better at 40 than I did at 26. Um, you got to think, you know, that's, that's gonna, should help my longevity. Right. And I, I'm definitely enjoying it more too. So as to your question on Paris, you know, that's Paris is two years out. You know, if I'm able to maintain my fitness, able to keep on that, you know, not, not, not get hurt. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to give one more run at it. I'll be, I'll be 42 years old and, you know, um, it, it would be an absolute gas to, to give it a go. Now I will say one of the hardest things about where I'm at now is doing track meets are a lot harder. I'm able to fly in and out of races over the weekend and get in and out in a day or two, but going to track meets, you're, you're gone for four or five days and, and that does take its toll on the family. So um, it's, it's not one of those things I can do a lot, but maybe if I give it one year, Hey, two, so what I'm saying is I, I probably won't be involved with trying to go to worlds in an off year or something like that. But when it gets to the important year, um, yeah, be able, you know, give a run at it and see where it goes. How much of your data collection and your learning that you obviously just shared with us from that data collection, do you share with like, like Parasport Spokane, with the kids, with that 16-year-old kid who was talking about old man muscles? How much <laughs> of that kind of stuff do you share with them? Because this is, this is your experience and, and could put them on an entirely different trajectory than they would have been and a different trajectory possibly for you, like as a 26-year-old kind of thing. It's hard because the, the, most of those parasport kids are still in their teenage years. And I, I understand their brains aren't wired quite like mine to be into data collection. So I've tried to show them a little bit and they've been like, oh, that's nice. Um, I have shared uh, stuff with Teresa and I, I, I do know that, uh, hey, hey, this is the cat I'm using. And, and she's tried to introduce some of that data collection to um, team members as well. Um, more than more than showing data collection to those youngsters, though, it was more about showing up and showing that I am getting faster week to week and talking about, hey, you're, you're, you're not seeing me here six days a week. I know you're here six days a week, but I was training the last couple of days and this is how many miles I did. It. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm tired today because I did a 20 miler yesterday, you know. OK, so talking about that, that consistency um, and I think that's more important. To them at their age than uh, than than talking about hey you got to log all your miles because you know that that kind of thing doesn't work for a lot of people but um, in terms of sharing you know I, I had I had 
I share, you know, publicly on Strava, and I, I do have a couple other people, wheelchair racers that I follow or follow me, and I like to think at least some of those uh, practices, um, other people are seeing what's going on, and they're seeing some of the importance of of doing that as well. Yeah, and and I'm not talking so much about that they have to compile the same data that you do, but mm -hmm. the 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 ills of overtraining. Yeah, uh, of of not getting a good night's sleep mm -hmm. some of these things that are not being hydrated that that are profoundly you know of not eating well like more of the interpretation of your data than necessarily the you need to record everything about yourself and then be yeah. able to interpret it because a lot of people in your situation will be completely overwhelmed yeah by the data that they've compiled yeah. Okay. I see where you're going with that. And so at, when I was doing the track with the Parasport Spokane team in 2021, we were staying at some Airbnb. So um, there were a couple people, not so much the folks that were teenagers, but there were some folks in their twenties that were there, you know, amputee runner, um, you know, dwarf shop putter. And I had some more conversations with them. And I think that's when it's you know, more impactful to be talking about these life habits um, because teenagers are tired. Their parents always tell them what to do and whatnot. Um, they're not going to listen anyway. But once you're in your 20s, you're starting to take care of yourself. I did share, hey, this is what I found. And, and this is why I was able to make uh, make a comeback and making better choices in this way. And so, I don't know, I'm not I'm not a person who's going to be loud mouth and go telling everybody what they want to, you know, what's working for me but I'm, I'm definitely if anybody's got those questions i'm happy to talk about what worked for me and why why i'm able to be in the position i'm in i'm excited that you shared it all with us really is what it comes down to i mean this is i've never i've never used like a whoop or anything like that but that to me i've always sort of been curious as to how the sleep pattern works how the recovery works what kind of a a score and and i'm assuming that there are times that it can go backwards as well right where you happen to go to a race and it tells you well your recovery score is absolutely miserable and you have to somehow dismiss all of your faith in this machine to say well i, <laughs> I have to go as fast as i can today the, the, yeah there is a risk to check, checking it before a race that's for sure but um you know, when I woke up and it was in the 80s before Boston, I'm like, yes, I'm ready. So, yeah. <laughs> but no, this is super cool. I love the the perspective and being able to look at your training over so many years and, and to be able to make solid decisions based on that training and decisions that have affected and helped you to, to be in the place where you are right now. Because I think that we're all looking to be as healthy and as productive as we can be, but our instincts aren't necessarily always directing us where the data can be more helpful. Yep, and, and I, I will say I've, I've taken a little, you know, I've, I've taken some sort of um, motivation from watching guys like, you know, I, I know you're not fishing here, but watching guys like you and Scott Hollenbeck back in the 2004 and, and watching what you guys were eating. I, I do remember you just digging into those papayas that you loved and, uh, uh, um, and, uh, you know, just watching how guys like you were eating when I was 22 and like, oh, that's kind of weird. But now is, you know, I, I'm even older than you guys were at that time, but, uh, trying to take on some of those habits and 
Um, you know, it's amazing what you as a youngster can learn and remember, you know, even 20 years later and think, hey, these guys were doing it back then. Maybe I, you know, I, I, I can be doing it now. So yes. you might not <laughs> learn it in the moment, but it does stick with you. It, it absolutely does. Uh, when you got good role models around, it, uh, it can stick, stick with you for a long time. Well, Todd, yeah. thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for thanks for continuing to show us what you know what someone can do because that's that's such a big deal for all of us is is to see someone you know ha have a dream, have a goal, have an objective, and go and and make it a reality because it makes the rest of us believe that we can do it too. So thank you. Oh, thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed talking about it, and uh, you know, here's to continue good health and. Uh, same, same to you, Chris. I've been enjoying seeing your little spins around your circuit. So uh, hope to see you again in a racing chair again soon. No I, know, I know. I'll have to do that. No marathons this fall for me, but fair, fair. you need some time. <laughs> there we go, exactly. We'll get ramped up. All right. Well, thank you to all of you. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends about it. Please tell your friends. We'll have another great guest next week. This will become a traditional podcast. When it does, please like us, please follow us, and that will enable us to do more for you. So we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks a ton. Take care.